Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Lima Nasri. Lima is a senior engineering manager at Comcast. Lima, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Why don't we get started by talking a little bit about your background? You've been at Comcast for nine years, and as of about 14 months ago, you have been leading the recommendations group there. What are you doing in and around recommendations at Comcast? Yeah, sure. Definitely. Um, Yeah. So I've been here for a while. Most recently, so the past 14 months, like you've said, um, I switched over to leading the recommendations team. So when I did that switch, um, it was a really small team. Um, Other companies, their recommendations team or really their personalization team is one of the most important and biggest part of their uh, content discovery platforms or content discovery teams. At Comcast, that wasn't quite the case. Um, About 14 months ago, it was about three people. The main focus, unfortunately, at the time was just training a model and then deploying that model in production to surface predictions or to surface what people should watch on cable um, in one way or another. And it was a one-size-fits-all model. So essentially, we had one model that did everything. So regardless of the context in which the, you know, quote-unquote predictions were being served, we still used the same model. And we, we didn't tweak it as much as we should based on, you know, where it was being surfaced on a on X1, X1 being our content discovery platform for cable. So anyhow, so it was a small team. So it was pretty much like an engineer on the team, less management, more engineering, which was fun for me. And it's tripled in size since then, which is great. But the goal of when I switched over to that team was to essentially resurrect uh, the recommendations platform, which sounds kind of morbid, but um, <laughs> I, I like the alliteration. So that's the name of my talk at Strangely, Resurrecting a Recommendations Platform. Nice. And so the focus of your talk is what? How you kind of went in uh, commando yeah. style and like <laughs> to continue. That. <laughs> Essentially. So the focus of the talk is really building a end-to-end machine learning platform. And coming from my background, I majored in computer science. And then I didn't obviously start in AI and machine learning. I instead started in the web service tier. So I built web services that got millions of requests per day. Um, as you can imagine, like we get the scale at Comcast is pretty high. So having that background of building web services and platforms that scale really helped this team to go from simply having this really old school platform where it was a bunch of machine learning jobs that ran on physical infrastructure that took hours and hours to complete to building that to be more event-driven and real-time updates and also like owning the end-to-end data collection you know, requests from the client, everything. That's essentially what we did. We went from owning just the model to owning, surfacing the recommendations, training the model, evaluating the model, and then having multiple models in production. I, I thought it was interesting when you described the world that you walked into when you transitioned into this role as, unfortunately, we just had a model and we're making some recommendations uh, with yeah. machine learning. Like a lot of companies are, you know, trying to get to that. Right. That's a really good point. I think. The unfortunate aspect of that was, um, as an engineer, the code and the infrastructure was not where I like wanted it to be. Uh, for example, and you'll hear this in so many machine learning talks where they talk about the end-to-end, the infrastructure is probably the most important part. And at the time, we had like a, like a 13-node cluster running 
community edition of our Hadoop distribution. Uh, so if there were any problems, we couldn't call anyone. And it, again, it was MapReduce, which, you know, one significant benefit of MapReduce is it's all I.O. So as long as you have space, you rarely fail. But again, that meant that the jobs ran forever. I mean, we had a job that we recently deprecated, which was exciting, that <laughs> literally took 18 hours. And it was what its sole responsibility was to sessionize data so that it could feed our model. Wow. Yeah, 18 hours. I mean, imagine what you can get done in 18 hours and this job still wasn't done. Wow. So right? so, so walk us through this process of resurrecting this recommendations platform. Yeah, that's that sounds good. So kind of in my mind, when I first took this on, I broke it down to four main parts, the data platform. So we wanted to build a proper data pipeline to consume the data into our ecosystem so that we could easily aggregate those usage events of what customers are doing on our platform so that it could feed a model. And you'll ask anyone that does anything with machine learning, the data is sometimes the hardest part. Sometimes it actually hurts me to hear. I'll hear researchers uh, at Comcast say that they're working on a model, and then I hear them talk about the pain that they take into creating the training data set. So that's what we were trying to abstract. So the data platform was the first part. And this this is... Uh... You know, without going into too deeply into this part before you walk through them, I'm imagining that much of what you're dealing with is kind of the traditional telco cable service provider type of data sources, provisioning systems and, oh, and yeah. that kind of thing. Or are you dealing no. with any of that stuff or just not? No, it's actually um, think it was a lot of it's what people are doing on the platform. So it's. So all, like, just the interactive side, you don't have to yeah, worry like about the usage, the... like what okay. they're clicking on, what they're watching, what they're not watching, like what they get surfaced, but then are ignoring. So it's like, it's our content discovery. So like, what should they watch on TV? So more okay. of that side, definitely not the old school cable side. Okay. Um, I try to stay away from that part. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so there was a day, so breaking it up into four pieces, there's the data, the data tier, and then there was just orchestrating the machine learning aspects. So easily orchestrating the key steps that are obviously required to build a model and then foresee that model into production. Um, that was actually one of my goals, which we achieved was to have more than one model. Um, and that's not for a big company like this. It, that's not a crazy thing to have. Um, to have a model that's fine-tuned to, you know, suggest content that is available for rent versus having a, a model that's, you know, fine-tuned for suggesting rec music recommendations for customers that have a higher propensity to watch music videos on, on Comcast. So orchestrating the process and training, evaluating, and then, of course, deploying um, the model was the second part that we had to do because previously we lived in a world where we just had one and we just had to make sure we had to keep the lights on that one machine learning, like, quote-unquote, platform. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, so the ability to experiment and deploy was the second thing that we wanted to tackle. And the third part was A-B testing. So before I switched to the recommendations team, I actually worked on a big data platform, which I could use that experience for this team, so it, was, it worked out fairly well. But while also on that team, we built an A-B testing platform, which meant we essentially created a system that tagged accounts and then if you tag like or if you tag users, then you should be able to give them different types of experiences based on that tag, you know, super high level A-B testing logic. But what was ironic is we built that and then we had nothing to A-B test. Um, so <laughs> the luxury of moving to the recommendations platform is there's so much to A-B test. So I pulled that over with me when I made this switch. And then last but not least was the infrastructure problem that I mentioned earlier. As we grew as a company, the infrastructure did not grow. 
So the more customers that we were getting onto the X1 platform, our infrastructure stayed the same. So that's somewhat mind boggling if you think about that. Like the more data you get, the more you need to you know scale out your platform. And one of the changes we made to support that um, was, of course, moving to the cloud. Mm-hmm. So yeah, at a high levels, I think those were the four key pieces needed to resurrect a recommendations platform. Okay, nice. Well, let's dig in. Uh, yeah, we can start good. at the beginning. The data platform, building out this data pipeline. You're starting with uh, interaction data, clickstream data, that kind of thing. What do you need from a pipeline perspective to support uh, building these kinds of models at scale? Right. So the biggest issue that we saw with what I call the legacy platform, which is the one that ran on the the physical infrastructure, the MapReduce-specific platform, what I noticed was that we had so much code to get the data in the right format. Um, and that's, I'm sure you'll hear that all the time with machine learning. It's always getting the data in the right format at the right time. So what we did is we decided to go the serverless route. So we have a battalion of Lambda functions that consume the events in real time. So as the event happens, we eventually consume that into our into our data platform. And then right at that moment, um, we transform it to meet the specific requirements of the platform. So fortunately at Comcast, and I know this is a problem outside of Comcast, a lot of the data is originally in plain text, and plain text obviously doesn't play well with any data processing framework. So the first step typically is transforming those into a proper schema, which is usually Avro or some binary format. Um, and then once we have that, then we start enriching the data so that it has more context, like simple things like if they've watched this TV show, enrich it with some metadata. Um, this TV show is the genre or the year it was made or um, what language it was in. Um, and then once we've enriched it with that metadata, the next Lambda function was uh, aggregating it um, for the user. So it was kind of, the goal was to build this seamless event-driven platform that we could kind of close our eyes and it would just do what we expected. It wasn't like scheduled. It wasn't based on, you know, scheduling jobs and, you know, some Azkaban or Uzi or some job scheduler was when the event happens, something is triggered and it goes through the process. I really was not expecting to hear serverless come up in this conversation. Oh, really? <laughs> Sorry about that. I mean, that. typically pipeline, you know, we're talking about like ETL or workflow yeah. engines like Airflow or something totally. like that. This is super interesting that you went the serverless route. Right. Were you already uh, in AWS for this application? No, we weren't at all, which was, it took far longer than I thought. Because again, it wasn't like a lift and shift to AWS. This was our first um, introduction, specifically my, at least at least my first introduction to AWS. So the learning curve was somewhat steep, but it, it really paid off. And I mean, you mentioned Airflow. So we do utilize Airflow for the second part of the four key parts to building a machine learning platform. Um, and that was for the orchestration of when we do what. But yeah, so I kind of, I kind when I hear the word ETL, it kind of, I get like, it kind of irks me because it it's so much more than ETL. You know, if you build a data platform that, you know, is avoiding the construct of a machine, uh, of a pipeline jungle, it, it could be like somewhat kind of beautiful, you know? How specifically does serverless help you avoid the pipeline jungle? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, specifically in the Lambda route, what was nice about Lambdas is it very, very well managed in AWS. Um, meaning like when, so obviously data fluctuates depending on the day of the week when it comes to content uh, consumption on TV. 
um, you'll see Sundays and Thursdays, the usage is far higher. So Lambda scaled in and out for us, which was awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the ability to have them be triggered based on some other, like some other action was also critical. Um, which, so that, yeah, so that's the route. That's the reason why I think ser- serverless in the Lambda context worked for um, this data pipeline. Hmm. Now I haven't, done a ton with serverless hands-on mm-hmm. but the yeah. attempts that I've made to play with it it mm-hmm. it just seemed like a configuration mess it was a little bit actually you know hard hard to kind of wrap my head around like how you manage these kind of function artifacts you know the yeah. way that you would manage you know version control and like yeah. how you tie everything together like was yeah. there a big learning curve for you there there was I mean so we utilized terraform. And that helped us a ton, Terraform and Jenkins, to handle the whole versioning control and putting the artifact into a place where AWS could reference it. But I, I think the incorporation of Terraform made everything that you said a lot easier. But it did take us time. We didn't start with Terraform. We started with, you know, just AWS CLI, and it was a big mess. Um, so going to Terraform route helped a ton. Now, that's kind of blowing my mind. I think of Terraform as like laying down images and containers and stuff like that. What does that have to do with serverless? I mean, so you could deploy your Lambda functions using Terraform, right? Uh, Or you could configure them using Terraform. Okay. Uh, So, yeah. So, I mean, a lot of what we do, it it utilizes, like, the goal is never to put anything in AWS without using Terraform in one way or another. Got it. So your your functions are essentially configuration. That's the point. And you're using yeah. Terraform as configuration management and it's managing the like battalion of functions that need to be triggered. Yeah. Right. I'm kind of trying to figure out how far to geek out on serverless yeah. here. Like are, <laughs> no worries. How did you get your developers comfortable from a tooling perspective with Lambda functions? Like is it to the point now where there's kind of IDE support or it's um, so I think the biggest struggle we've had is testing changes locally. Mm-hmm. That's essential. I think that, and we're still struggling with that. I know there are frameworks out there that we could use. We just haven't had the you know time or the resources to experiment with them. Um, but at, at some point, we were essentially deploying and making changes in production in our you know quote unquote production platform. We did live in a space where we had both the legacy and the production at the same time. So that was a kind of a luxury in that we could make changes to our data pipeline. Um, are all these Lambda functions in our AWS production platform. And then if any, if we messed anything up, we could always rely on our physical infrastructure to copy the data that we may have, you know, dropped because we made a mistake. But yeah, I think the, the biggest struggle was being careful for what we did. And also the other biggest struggle was the cost. I mean, there was this one time where we um, enabled CloudWatch um, to test one of our Lambda functions and we had it on debug mode. And unfortunately, like after just like three or so hours, it resulted in 20K. Um, wow. Of expenses. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a lot. It's a ton. Um, and it was just four hours. I remember frantically figuring out, like, how do we turn this off? Because it wasn't one of my Lambda functions. What caused that? You shifted over too much traffic to it or something like that? No, we just turned on debug logging. Um, ah, okay. Okay. And so yeah, you're sending and- a, a ton of logs to yeah. w- invoke this you know, we're invoking exactly. these Lambda functions. And Got it. it wasn't just the, like, the logs that we specifically wrote. It was all the logs that were created by all the dependencies that are pulled in. So we were seeing, you know, logs from Apache, logs, everything, everything in its mother was being logged. So 20K. Wow. Yeah, wow. it's a good story. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> now we're yeah. really careful, but it could have been way worse. I was, I made a joke with the team that if that were me, it probably would have been like 60K because wow. I logged 
a ton. <laughs> <laughs> and so how about the stringing together of the Lambda functions? It sounds like you're you're essentially creating these pipelines yeah. in Lambda functions. Is uh, Presumably, AWS makes that pretty easy if you stay within the Lambda environment. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. So it's it's very um, like action-oriented. Um so it, these Lambda functions are triggered based on these defined actions that we specify. So for example, it all starts with consuming data from Kinesis or Kafka or some event stream. A Lambda function gets triggered to you know, pull or automatically Kinesis triggers itself and it, it reads data from the event stream. And then we say, okay, this is the raw because you know, data one-on-one never get rid of the raw data because you may you know, mess up how you transform it. So we stick the raw data into... Uh, our bucket, our S3 bucket. And then there's another Lambda function that's, you know, waiting for these events to be written to that path. So it gets triggered on that. So every time there's like a new file that's created, um, another subsequent Lambda function gets triggered and it it does the enrichment aspect. And then once once we've enriched that file, the, the usage events in that file, we write that back out to a, a different part of that S3 bucket. And then there's a subsequent different Lambda function that, you know, starts aggregating the data to start building the feature data set that um, the models eventually consume, if that makes sense. It's very, like, events mm-hmm. for me. It does make sense. So I'm going to ask again a question that I asked earlier. You referred to, I forget the, actually the specific wording, but like avoiding a, a pipeline hell or pipeline yeah, spaghetti pipeline or something like that. Yeah, yeah. You've essentially created some number of pipelines here. Yeah. What specifically do you avoid you know, that you had to deal with before? Before, the, the data was discopied from one cluster to another cluster. And often that discopy would fail or there would be, you know, the, the data would lack in, in its full sense. Like there were, there, they had dropped events and we wouldn't, we wouldn't know until we realized, like, until there was, until our QA team was like, well, this box clearly watched the Sopranos, but we're not, we're not seeing that in the usage data that's being fed into the training model. Um, so it was just a lack of visibility is what we, we gained visibility of the most important part of a machine learning platform, our data pipeline. Um, and just being able to, you know, have alerts when we see like all of a sudden a drop in events, can, is it because of our infrastructure or is it because of upstream clients? Um, we never had that before because again, we didn't, we relied on another quote unquote data lake to provide us that data. Mm, so the kind so, of the at- atomicity, for lack of a, a better term, mm-hmm. of the like ownership, the, the functional environment gave you a lot more transparency and ownership of the different pieces right. and kind of forced you to think about transforming an individual piece of data at a time, like a log entry, as opposed to doing big batch runs of right. transformations or something. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, so avoiding the 18-hour MapReduce job for just doing it in somewhat real time. Uh, and so that's the data platform side. Yeah. So then there's the second part, the like orchestrating of the machine learning, machine learning side. Um, and that's where we, we did, we just, we have started to use Airflow, which is great that you mentioned that. But yeah, so the key part to that was before it was, there was no way for us to introduce a new model into our platform. There was just the one, the one machine learning model and that's it. And it did everything for us. It was a super high level. It was ALS matrix factorization. And it, we refined it in, in different ways. And we, we somewhat tested those uh, changes. But once we made a change to like our similarity matrix or anything specific to the model itself, there was no way of partitioning subscribers to only get this new algorithm. It's everyone gets it. So just being able to 
train a new or new model or a change and then evaluate that in an offline fashion and then push that into production, but only for like a subset of subscribers was the next big effort that we focused on. And how did you get there? Yeah, definitely. So one part, we started utilizing the A-B testing platform that I brought from my other team. And then two, making the the way that what we had to introduce, which also led to like a, a reason why my previous like work history was perfect for this team. Um, we introduced our own service layer. So before it was, our logic was super really tightly coupled with the client. Um, so if we think about it in a very high level fashion, this is obviously not how it's implemented. Um, when you watch TV, you see a bunch of options on your TV saying, you know, these are the TV shows you should watch. Here are the top movies for you. Um, we were super tightly coupled to that infrastructure. So if we wanted to introduce a new model, there was no way to tell the the, the cable box or the set-top box, hey, go go get this model for just this account. So adding a service layer in between us allowed us to be more independent in serving what we wanted to serve when, if that makes sense. So you're able to encapsulate the the business logic of what model to use to respond to a specific prediction request yep. at the service layer, yep. as opposed to just kind of serving up just raw model results. Yep. Just in serving raw predictions regardless. Yep. So, and that also gave us the next layer, which is we started to get context. We started asking the client to pass this context into what, where this is being served um, so that we can later, specifically, if we're looking at, you know, a view on X1 or on, on your cable box, it's like, here, here's all the music videos. Let's go to the model that's finely tuned for music. So yeah, so it was a combination of a few things. It was one, being able to get the data in the right format so that we could easily train it on different data. Um, so different feature sets to um, introducing that service layer in between the producing the predictions and serving the predictions uh, to the client. And um, three, we beefed up our evaluation metrics. Before, when we had this model, we really kind of was flying blind, I think is the phrase. I'm not sure. But we had really no idea how our models were performing. We would run, and this is before I joined the team. Um, I used to say they, so I'm getting used to saying we. We would, we would train our model and then our evaluation metrics were essentially just precision and it would run once a month or so, which is not ideal, especially for a customer facing platform. So we did spend a lot of time. This is kind of like a weekend project for me. I spent a lot of time on um, building apps that surface what our like our recall or precision, what that was at an hourly basis. So we could see this historical view of how our predictions are performing. Um, And then we could use that as a baseline to make changes. And was that, Easy to do with your pre-existing models, meaning were they sufficiently instrumented for you to be able to even report on uh, the their performance, or did you have to do a lot of work to to instrument them? That's a good question. Um, so it did take a good amount of work to be able to easily grab what we would predict right now. Because what I wanted to do is I wanted to build, or what I did do, what I built was a um, online, it's online, offline, online um recall platform, which essentially all it did was right now, I'm going to check all the events that we are, that people are like all the TV shows that a subset of subscribers are watching. And then right in this moment, I want to check what our recommendations platform is suggesting and do they match up, you know, basic recall evaluation. The hardest part was being able to easily grab, um, to be easily be able to check right now what we are predicting because it was encapsulated, uh, like deep in this, you know, 
legacy platform, which utilized Couchbase. So introducing that service layer made it easy. So essentially the the evaluation platform that we built, all it does is it hits our service layer. We pass it, you know, context for who the user is, and then it returns for this specific model what we would recommend. And then we just check that with what they're actually watching. You mentioned Couchbase. Uh, yeah. Presumably you, um, you know, ran your 18-hour MapReduce jobs, and it created a model, and it yeah. stored it in a database. Are you hitting a model based in code now, or is are you also kind of caching it in some database data structure? Yeah. Thing? So right now we're at we're going two routes. Um, there we're going one route where there's a model that's in based in a you know a recommender backend that we um, incorporate into our web service. That's work in progress. All the work that we've done since moving from our legacy platform has been um, pre-computing recommendations and writing it into Redis. Um, we've moved away from Couchbase, and only because, again, Redis is more of an AWS um, managed service, so it's easy to stand up mm-hmm. and scale out. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so that's the goal. The goal is to also go the route of of having the model be encapsulated in code and then also put into our web service. But yeah, we'll see how that goes. And would you envision uh, in in doing that? putting the actual predictions behind a Lambda function or does in- inference take too long for... Yeah, I, I think I would probably keep our service serverless side or our Lambda route in the back. I think for now, I'm keeping... I'm a bit nervous on the performance of Lambda functions with anything that's like customer impacting. So you built out the capability to use multiple models and yep. to benchmark those... Yep. The, the models relative to the previous system. You, you mentioned earlier uh, that part of what you wanted to do on the machine learning side is just make it easier to experiment with uh, models and with the data uh, and to deploy. What, what mm-hmm. have you done in that regard? Yeah, definitely. Um, so in that regard, to be able to easily experiment and deploy, we started to utilize Redshift. Um, so one of the big parts of machine learning and any model is your model is as good as the data that you train it on. So we started to experiment with what if we, and this is basic constructs that I'm sure other content discovery platforms already uh, went down. What if we started to train our model uh, based on different criteria? So, and this is before we went down the deep learning route where we're playing with hyperparameters. This is just the basic, our similarity matrix and everything that's like just super simple machine learning. Let's start playing with that. So what we started to do is first, let's put our data in a place that we can easily access so that we could train models quickly and not have to, you know, spend days babysitting them. So we put all our training data in Redshift, um, which, you know, it's just like a big data database. I think Oracle, um, but for big data. Um, And then what that allowed us to do was start segmenting subscribers based on attributes. Um, So I could explain one of the models that we recently deployed to production. At a high level, what we first did is we grouped subscribers based on their location. So people in Philly versus people in DC versus people in New York. Um, And then just on those small clusters, we started grouping them based on what they're similar to watch to each other. First, we started clustering based, segmenting based on locality. Then we started clustering within that based on what they watched. And then we fed those accounts into our training our models to produce recommendations. And we found what that was, um, the model trained a lot quicker. Um, We could do them in parallel. So instead of waiting hours and hours for one model to train based on all of our subscriber base, we had multiple models training at the same time. Um, 
And then where we leveraged Redis and, and our web services that we could easily, based on the key, write those predictions to Redis for this web service to pick up. I'm hearing the folks talking about doing training directly against the data warehouse, whether it's, you know, Redshift or yeah. BigQuery or something else, a lot more than I used to. And I don't know if that's because, you know, it's just kind of more business as opposed to academic or right. more, you know, production as opposed to kind of toy problems yeah. or or what? I think it's this evolution of engineers because um, how what at least what I've observed is before there was you know research traditional researchers and then there were engineers who uh, kind of had played a blind eye to everything that went on with machine learning. But I think <laughs> we're like starting to build machine learning engineers, and that's like the sweet spot where they can understand the intricacies and the detail oriented that's required for training models and evaluating them. But then they also know how to build platforms that can you know manage terabytes and petabytes worth of data to be able to access, if that makes sense. And so the data warehouse enabled you to kind of slice easily and dice, access easily yep. access this data. So like query language, yep. Mm -hmm. um, create uh, kind of new features on the fly, presumably. Yep. Did you do anything in terms of creating a feature store or trying to achieve feature reusability across models? Yep. Um, so we did a few things. One, we tried to go the, down the route of when we created a feature store, we would create a view. Um, for some reason, we found difficulty creating a view in Redshift at the time. So what we ended up doing was um, we would output that data to a, a different part of S3. So we have our, you know, our our partition, our path in S3, where our our bigger training data set exists, and you know that data is offloaded or unloaded into Redshift. Um, once we came to a point where we've evaluated a model and then we were like, okay, we want to deploy that production, but we want to save the training, the feature set, we would output that into a specific, you know, training data set part of our um, S3 bucket. And if you're developing new features for a model and you need to backfill, is that something you do manually or do you have some kind of automation in there? So the only automation that we've gotten to at this point is utilizing Airflow to um continuously update the tables to the, the tables in our, what we call our training tables in Redshift. Um, we haven't gotten to the point where we are um, automated to offloading the feature data set, um, but that's definitely something we'd like to look into. Uh, and then kind of back to this idea of experimentation, how are you managing experiments in terms of, you know, recording yeah. uh, that iterative process? Right, right. So there's a lot of metadata that goes along with experimenting, right? It's the version of the model, the, you know, the time frame in which you extracted the training data set, you know, was it the last three months or the last nine months or the last 13 months, the, the instance type that you use, the GPUs. Um, so we offload that metadata into DynamoDB at the time or currently. Um, and we often reference that when we have to deploy the model's production. Um, but right now our, what we call our, um, our model metadata store, it's, we're utilizing Dynamo. Is that a manual process to keep that up to date as you're experimenting? Yeah, it's one of the steps in our Airflow uh, workflow um, is once we've, want, before we start training a model, we first insert a record that describes like what the model is. Here's the training data set it's going after. It's, it's typically part of every, it's the first step before we start training it. And then the last step is it outputs the time, like how long it took. Um, and then you know, the recall about the high level evaluation, the recall evaluation or the precision that was determined 
um, after the predictions were produced. But okay. it's part of the end-to-end flow. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't think I made that connection earlier. Part of the way you're using Airflow is to Work manage street. the training workflow. Yep. yep, yep. And it took us a while to get there. Before, we were super manual. Um, you know, we would execute a job, wait. And then I'll put this data into a Google Excel sheet. Wait, you know, like it was, it, and then we realized, right. wait, we should do something about this. And so were there multiple steps to get to using Airflow or did you realize the problem and then, you know, big bang, you, you've put the Airflow solution in place? It was fairly straightforward. Um, in the past, we've, I mean, we've dealt with uh, things like Uzi workflows that were traditional with the Hadoop infrastructure. Airflow was really straightforward from my perspective, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it seems to be the best practice what everyone else is using. I, re- I remember we were going down the route of looking at something else, and then we read a few, few blog posts that were suggesting stick with Airflow, so that's what we did. For training, mm-hmm. do you have multiple workflows for different types of training jobs or have you kind of abstracted training as a workflow and you've got different ways to parameterize that? Uh, we have different. So at the moment, that's a good question, parameterizing. That's actually the dream would be to parameterize that. Right now we have different workflows, um, but we also have like a, a lot of different types of algorithms because, um, you know, like there's the typical recommendations isn't just producing recommendations, there's a relevancy aspect to it too. So our, our relevancy models, you know, require a different workflow than our, than our core uh, recommendations models. Um, so right now they're different workflows. It'd be great to get to a point where they're parameterized. Um, uh, so we'll see, hopefully one day. Uh, last bit on this experimentation piece, have you incorporated any aspect of automated uh, hyperparameter tuning? That would be great, actually. That's one of that's on our to-do list. One, our research team would love that. Um, so we are look, at, as I mentioned earlier, in the previous world or 14 months ago, we had this this one machine machine learning algorithm um, that was you know one size fits all. It was at super high levels and ALS matrix factorization. And what we wanted to do more, um, especially with the, the everyone's talking about AI and and ML, we we started to go down three routes. So we, I mentioned the utilizing clustering and recommendations together. So that's the route that's already in production. Um, our research team is going down the route of utilizing deep learning models that are uh, somewhat based off of word to vec um, And that's where we want to do exactly what you said with the uh, hyperparameters. We're not quite there yet. We're still very much in the experimentation phase with this um, deep learning model that's similar to word to vec So we'll see. If it, if it gains momentum, maybe we'll start you know, abstracting that. But as of now, we're seeing some limitations. So we'll see how far this goes. So you've hit experimentation, deployment. You've talked about server-side in Redis. uh, And then you've alluded to this next step, which is A-B testing previously. But I get the impression that there's more to it than what we've talked about so far. Yeah, definitely. So A-B testing is my sweet spot just because I built built that platform uh, prior to joining the recommendations team. Um, And the A-B testing platform that we built what it does is it allows for, in partnership with our web service, it allows for a certain set of customers to get one model and then another subset of customers get a different model. Um, and then, of course, it always takes into account breaking out the control. One thing that I always say when we talk about A-B testing, is it's quite expensive. It does take time. So when in doubt, try to do as much offline evaluation as you can. And it's also, at least with TV viewing behavior, there there are some times where you just, you can't run an A-B test. Like, on Comcast, like working at Comcast, you, you can't run an A-B test during the Olympics. The data fluctuates so much. It's so skewed to Olympics that 
for that entire month, you're not, you can't experiment, right? Um, so we get that a lot in the in the TV world. So when I mean A-B testing is ex- expensive is when we, when we find a good time where, you know, data isn't fluctuating, the usage patterns are, you know, you can predict, then we should execute an A-B test. And what that platform entails is a few parts. It's the the tagging of putting essentially traits onto accounts and then associating those similar traits or tags that are on accounts to the models so that the models are only surfaced for those accounts or those customers. Sorry, I'm talking such cable lingo. So yeah, so it facilitates that. Orchestra- it orchestrates allowing different models to be available for different customers. Um, and then the second part is the metrics aspect, um, which is deriving, you know, analytics on how the customers are actually interacting with those new rows or those new content, the new content that's being surfaced. Uh, so your A-B testing is primarily kind of at scale across the the client base. Yeah. The luxury is that we have millions of subscribers. So the sample size, we could do something like we're, we're A-B testing something where it's like a million. So we're, there's never a doubt whether this meets statistical significance because our, our sample sizes are so huge. We talked a little bit about kind of evaluation metrics before in the context of when you kind of instrumented your previous model. What kind of instrumentation do you have on the current model and how does that play into your A-B testing system? Right. So they're actually, um, they're very tangential to each other. Um, the A-B testing framework is a uh, more so on the, um, I guess, the, the front office side of our platform, whereas the orchestration of our models is more of our, you know, back office side. Um, because the, if at some point one of the models isn't isn't performing as we expect, we need to be able to easily turn that off for customers. Um, so, you know, utilizing what the web service to be able to gate us from doing that, um, to, to enable us to do that, to gate different features from different customers, um, I guess is the key difference, um, if that makes sense. Uh, so meaning you're collecting metrics on model performance and primarily consuming consuming those metrics within the web service tier so that you can take action if predictions start yeah, to degrade. Yeah, quicker action, right. Um, and it's, it's not like a historic, like for um, the evaluation of models and typically what we call the back office side, we have like historical usage, right? Um, Mm -hmm. For A-B testing, we really just care of what just happened the past day or the past two days or the past week. So keeping that small subset of usage from the recent timeframe is a lot easier on the web service side than it would be in the, if we were keeping historical data. Got it. Got it. So you're, the the A-B testing is pure kind of online. You've got two models in flight, you've labeled traffic and you're serving up different models and you're just exactly. comparing very short-term results uh, between those models. Exactly. Yep. What do you tend to see in terms of model shelf life, model degra- degradation, that kind of thing for um, these kind of recommendation models that you're building? That's a good question. Um, so the biggest, like, I guess, issue that I've seen is, is, the frequency in which we need to train these models. If the customer keeps seeing the same exact pre-computed recommendations over and over again, it gets kind of old, right? So being able to frequently update the pre-computed recommendations that are produced by our models is something that we're trying to experiment on how we could do more often. For example, weighting higher what you just, just watched versus something that you've watched, you know, six months ago. That's something that we're trying to evaluate how we could like not overemphasize something that you just watched, but some sweet spot where it's 
It's just enough where you see the impact and what you're being served. The last piece of the puzzle was infrastructure. Right, right. And we kind of discussed that a bit with with everything that we mentioned with the AWS or public cloud. But it was fairly straightforward as the legacy platform that we'd built was primarily running on this physical infrastructure. um, And we weren't at the point where we could scale that out, where we could add more nodes to the Hadoop cluster. So the easiest decision was moving up to the public cloud AWS. And of course, you know, with every new decision where you make, where you're dramatically changing something, some aspect of your platform there, there, you find new problems, your old problems go away, but you get new problems. And one of those is it's very easy to spend money Um, in AWS. (laughs) It's very easy to lose money in AWS. So that was one of the struggles that we've been working through. And another aspect is it's it's very easy just to start picking new technologies. It, there's something new in AWS every month. It feels like maintaining the yeah, at least maintaining the the, the key tech stack, um, and then not trying to move too far from it. Otherwise, you're just going to build this this ginormous technical debt um, where you're continuously to learn and then update, and then you just realize like wait, like there, there's this example. We went down the path of using utilizing before we went down lambdas. We we uh, decided to use Kafka Connect for uh, consuming data from Kafka. And because that wasn't specifically managed by AWS, there was a lot of inherent difficulties with monitoring and getting the logs and just seeing how it's performing that we realized we can't just pick any technology. We have to really think of the technology that we pick since we're in this public cloud space. So yeah, so I was there's actually, whenever I talk about infrastructure um, and I ever make the case um, for more budget, I often reference this um, there was this paper that was pu- that was published at the NIPS conference by these Google developers. It was something on the lines, I forget the exact title, it was like the hidden technical debt in machine learning systems or machine learning platforms. Machine learning uh, is the high interest credit card of technical debt. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's my favorite paper. Um, it's a great paper. It was re- so I often, like I said, I often reference it when I have to make the case for our cloud infrastructure needs more budget um, or we need to do this because it essentially explains that it's it's quite it's really easy to start building technical debt when implementing a platform like this, mm-hmm. um, regardless of any platform. Um, and in that paper, they go into detail, the risk factors, you know, data dependency and configuration issues, things that we've talked about today. Um, what I also really like about that paper is that it like specifically states that like machine learning systems have a special capacity for like acquiring this technical debt. I mean, a lot of platforms that, you know, that was written with code do this, but then there's an additional set of um, debt that can be gained from machine learning issues. And I think moving our infrastructure to AWS, we realize that really quickly. Hmm. And so how do you think that the that machine learning in the cloud kind of accentuates hmm. that? Well, of, co- of course, there's the, um, the budget aspect. And then even there's just, there are easy ways where we, um, it's really easy to, deploy to the cloud. Um, and whereas before there were always constraints where, um, oh, we don't have enough space. Like we're just, we're just going to keep collecting data and then we're going to just delete the last, you know, the, the most historical data we have. That, that's not a problem in AWS. Like, of course there's Glacier and there are ways to archive data, but you can kind of keep, you know, adding and picking up the latest and greatest, you know, version of Spark and then just releasing with that and, and not realize that you're, you're kind of building this platform that has so many different pieces because it's easy to just hop on and and you know spin up an EC2 mm. instance to do that and or you know spin up an EMR instance to uh, run this clustering algorithm and then you kind of just forget about it. Whereas in a physical infrastructure, you can only do as much 
as you're allowed to, right? Otherwise, right, right, right. be a backlog of jobs waiting. No, that's really interesting. There's a story in there somewhere, like the double-edged sword of agility in the cloud. Like you, right? Got, definitely. There's well there's friction in the the real world, not the real world, because cloud is real for sure right. at this point. But the traditional there's friction and inefficiencies, I guess, that makes you think about the way you do things. And cloud, in taking away some of that, makes it easy to not think about some of the things you're doing, exactly. which leads to debt. That's really right. interesting. Very, very well said. Thank you. Those are essentially the four parts of resurrecting a recommendations platform. Nice. And how do you characterize the business impact of all this? That's a great question. So that was actually the biggest question I had in, in all honesty when I first switched over to this team about 14 months ago is I just couldn't see the value that these recommendations were producing. Um, I, I mean, I, I saw that we are recommending content, but A, we weren't really measuring it. B, were we taking into account what the business wants us to recommend? So that's something that we've been playing with a lot. So we've been specifically building models that are taking into account what the business wants. For example, promoting content that is specifically, you know, given to us by a provider. Let's see if we can figure out the customers who are likely to watch that and include that in their recommendations. Um, whereas previously it would have just been at the bottom of the barrel, we would have never looked at it. So definitely taking into account what the business goals are we've been trying to consider on the recommendations team. And also from a um, business perspective, how they're being surfaced. There's something that we've been A-B testing. It's just the names of the rows where are serving content. You know, we're going down the path or we are, we are on the path of having in surfacing, you know, because you watched Wonder Woman. Um, how does that play against a row that's surfacing the same content, but it's called top movie picks for you? So leveraging how the business works and what works best um, and taking that into account in our machine learning platform and utilizing A-B testing is kind of the the big picture to see if we can increase hours watched or increase engagement by making small tweaks to this platform. Well, Lima, thank you so much. This was a really, really fun conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.